<laughs> yes, Becky, we're podcasting tonight and you're starting. <laughs> I was like, why isn't she starting? Went, okay, it's me. We'll cut that bit out. Oh, I don't think we should oh, no. cut it out. I think that's staying in, mate. <laughs> oh, did you see something shiny? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I was looking at a chicken outside. <laughs> right, hi and everyone, welcome back to Spine Chillers and Serial Killers. I'm Becky. I'm Emma. And I'm Tash. <sighs> Professional as always. Welcome to episode 27. Ooh, welcome, 27. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Oh, I've done it already. Yeah, <laughs> She's already singing. <laughs> she swore that she would not sing. I literally said to you in the week, I sing too much. I'm not going to do it next week. <laughs> and, and we're not even, what, a minute and a half in? A minute in. and a half in, I've already sung. Yeah. Thing is though, when we sing at the time, I don't think we don't sound brilliant, but I don't think we sound that bad. But then when I hear it back, I mean, what? that one we did, the Amarillo one, <laughs> was so <laughs> horrible. That like, was, I've, I've got to say that was my favourite yet. No, but it was <laughs> so awful. We were so out of time. <laughs> at the time i didn't realize that becky had like adjusted it to go with the black kids theme <laughs> so listening back I, I giggled it was funny it was horrendous didn't know the words didn't really know the tune also you knew that pillow rhymed with amarillo though <laughs> also peter k redid it it wasn't him that did it originally was it well probably not no i can't see him as a singer songwriter Anyway, the moral of the story is I clearly can't help myself but sing. So maybe You're a singer. Let's not make promises I can't clearly have absolutely no way of keeping. Well, you're just a happy, happy person. Happy, happy, happy. Are we happy though? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we are. Or are we just like on the edge of a fucking nervous breakdown? That's a hundred percent who I am as a person. Always. Always on the edge. Like, I'm one thing away from a nervous breakdown every single minute of my life. Isn't that everybody at the minute, though? I don't know. I don't know. I feel particularly, at this point in my life, like, even more so. Like, it sometimes it's the most ridiculous things that tip me over the edge. I've cried at more films in the last maybe three months than I have in the last three years. Oh. But well, like, I can sympathise because I'm a crier. I cry at everything. But in Adverts. a way that, like, you know, when you're like, oh, I needed that cry. It's one oh, of yeah. those. Oh, it feels good. Yeah. feels good. Yeah. You do feel better after a good but, cry. But I am fine, just putting it out there. Like, I am fine, guys. She's fine, okay? Yeah, right. I <laughs> am fine. But do not ask me for ketchup. Yeah. <laughs> um, Becky, I think it's you to start this week, sweetheart. Yep. Well, this time, this week, dum, dum, dum. I actually have a serial killer for you. <gasps> Sticking to our title. I'm there for that. Yeah. This is why the people keep coming back. <laughs> I think we all know they keep coming back for my singing. Oh, I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously that first, but the serial killers afterwards, right? <laughs> yeah. And maybe, and maybe the ghosts too. <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe, maybe. And I think it will please you, Emma, because it is 
an older it's set in um like the 70s a lot of it so it's not in 2020 so that won't upset you as much uh, that's good Do you know what i mean it won't be so close to home yeah how depressing is it that what when someone mentions the 70s i think it's like 30 years ago yeah me too it's not it's not it's 50 years ago oh shut up becky nobody needs to know that kind of nonsense <laughs> i mean uh when i see um at work and that we have to ask people's date of dates of birth so when they say oh 1974 and i'm like oh they're pretty young and they're about 35 no. <laughs> but they're not <sighs> but they're still they're not old yeah i'm not impressed about the amount of time i have to spend scrolling down that that is a piss thing. take isn't it yeah to get to my birthday Mm-mm, not so keen yeah. why that. don't they just make that a uh, type it in thing because it's really depressing when they do that. And it would be much quicker to type it in anyway. It would when you get yeah. to our age. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so old school serial killer. Yeah, not like it doesn't make it any less horrible. It's just not as recent, if you know what I mean. And then, you know, you know what I mean. You know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. So this case is set in Romania. So there's going to be a few names and stuff that I'm probably not going to be able to pronounce again. So bear with me. So this sort of story centers around Ion Rimaru, who was born on the 12th of October, 1946. But he was born when, sorry? The 12th of October. Oh, okay. Yeah. 1946. A Libran. Mm. Is that Okay. Well, I, I just find it weird that Libran would be a serial killer, but hey, why not? A Libran's not typically serial killers. Maybe they're just really good at it and they don't get caught. Ah, maybe, maybe. Is that what you are, a Libran? I'm a Libran, yeah. yeah. So basically you're confirming that you will not be a serial killer? I will definitely not be a serial killer, no. Okay. Right. So Ian's parents married in Karkal and had three sons. Eon was their eldest child. Again, not great family life, really. His parents argued daily. The couple eventually separated and his father moved to Bucharest. So they moved to Bucharest, taking a job as a night tram driver. Romaru got on really badly at school and was forced to repeat the ninth grade. But from adolescence... His libido caused public scandal in his hometown. So he was a little horny teenager. Ooh, uh. What was he doing? <laughs> he was found to be having a sexual relationship with the daughter of his teacher. Ooh, that's not good. Why not? When he was 18. She was underage. I don't know by how much. It's still your teacher, man. I mean, your teacher's gonna, that's a hard pill to swallow. She's got to have sex with someone, hasn't she? Yeah, still. He's still then got to go to class with his teacher knowing... I mean, true that. His teacher knowing full well that he fucked his daughter, yeah. her daughter. And it sounds like he's the class bad boy kind of thing. Yeah, it's not the kind of person you want shagging your daughter, really, no, is it? No, I suppose not. No. Eventually, during high school, Romaru, his grades were a lot better. He entered the Faculty of Veterinary Medicine at, at university in 1966 so he must have been pretty intelligent then because vet like a vet school is really difficult isn't it 
It's in the 60s, though, so I don't know if it was easier then or... But, I mean, the anatomy of animals remains the same now as it was then, so... Mm, Yeah. He had a grade of 5.33 out of 10, so he had to repeat his second year. Although he had entered university, one of Romero's professors described him as shy and semi-literate, with a very poor vocabulary and an extreme narrow range of interests. Apparently, he his like old roommates reported that he used to behave really strangely, so he was like the class weirdo. Mm. Um, so they just avoided him, which he didn't like. So, so he's an outcast. Yeah, a bit of an outcast. He self-harmed. Apparently, he didn't sleep very well either. Like, one of his roommates said that he didn't tend to sleep in the dorms. He prowled around the hallways and outside his room. Yeah, so he was just a bit of a creeper, really. He walked around the school at night and just didn't really sleep. But then again, he could have just been, at this point, he could just have a little bit of the old uh, insomnia. And... My vocab is rubbish and I can't speak half the time. So at the minute, I'm not, I'm not, not getting too many red flags there. Then while he was in university in late 1970 and early 1971, Bucharest was shaken by a series of crimes committed by an unknown individual who would use a hammer and a small axe, an iron bar or a knife to attack restaurant waitresses who were alone or returning from work. Great. He struck after midnight, usually, using the weather as well as cover, like snowstorm, high winds and driving rain, you know, where you're just kind of kind of looking in front of you to, to get home or whatever you're doing, yeah. rather than, you know, as aware. Yeah. Many women would not go outside after 9pm, unless they were in a large group or with, with men, because of this prowler that had started murdering people. Their terror was heightened by the police's reluctance to release details. So they had quite a lot of information on him, but they... I don't think they had a a description of the attacker yet. So this really exaggerated rumours that maybe it wasn't a man. Maybe it was a monster going around. And this was heightened to the fact that some of the bodies actually had holes poked in them as if a vampire had attacked them, like in the neck and stuff. Oh. And some of them were really just really badly gored with the bodies and people were just really, really suspicious that it wasn't a man, that it was, in fact, a vampire or some sort of oh, really? night creeper. Yeah. Oh, what could it have been? What was I talking about last week? The hide behind. He liked to rip yeah. his guts up, didn't he? Yeah, he loved a bit of that. And the rake with all of his running around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I meant to Google that, and I didn't. Oh, well, there. Google it before you go to bed tonight. You'll sleep oh. well. Yeah, I'm sure we, I'm sure we had a question about autopsies as well that I was supposed to. Oh no, that was it, bail. I never googled that either. Sorry everyone. Anyway, the first of this assailant's crimes started in like 1970, like I said, but they were a mix of attempted rapes or just stabbings. And then there was... Oh, just the little stuff then. Just the little stuff. You know, he started out light and then it just got worse and worse, especially in 1971. It was just murder, murder, murder. After all these bodies that are turning up, the police obviously realised that they were dealing with a serial killer 
and they started a year-long investigation with the help of the victims that would be the survivors as well. So he didn't murder everyone. There was a lot of attempted murders where he didn't go all the way through. So the clues that would eventually lead to an arrest was a medical diagnosis sheet, which was found on the 4th of March, 1971. A group of six doctors found that the murderer had a suspected periodic epilepsy. All right. He like left his doctor's notes underneath one of the bodies. Oh, I was going to say, how the fuck did they figure that out? But yeah, a note would do it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So this is basically like leaving his ID almost under one of the bodies. He kind of really fucked up here. So they found that under the body of Mihaela Ursu, who he murdered in an especially brutal fashion. So they've actually found strands of hair in between her fingers. And because the note was wet and bloody, only the letterhead from the Bucharest Students' Hospital was visible. So that's where he was studying at the time. What, so they couldn't see his name or anything? No, but they got his prescription for this epilepsy and they got the university, the Students' Hospital. So it's a hospital within the university where he's studying. Right. So I'm sure even if it's a huge university... There's not that many people with epilepsy. No, or that were being diagnosed while they were at the university as well. God, my stupid brain, before you said they found a note, I was like, how could they have sat out? Was there like a, like, uh, a pile of dust next to the victim where you could see that somebody had shaken about or were the stabby wounds really <laughs> inconsistent? I was like, how did they figure it out? <laughs> The smell tip, this smells like epilepsy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, after that murder, the serial killer began acting more randomly, not attacking waitresses anymore, but just going after women that were together or just walking out or just, just going after anyone, any kind of woman that he sees from now on. So what's his deal with women then? Uh, I don't know at the minute. I think we get to it a little bit further down, but I think a lot of it was waitresses. You know, when you, well, you've, you kind of know this, Tash, when you're looking, when you're locking up at night, if you're locking yeah. up by yourself. Easy pickings. You're tired after a long day. Oh no, absolutely. Easy yeah. Pickings. And that's why he was going after them. But no, I'm not sure. Um, I think they go, they go into it a little bit further down. He's got, he's got quite a few issues as this guy. My boss was always really lovely. He would always close up and he'd always walk me to my car. That's oh, very nice. That's good. Yeah. yeah. I think there should always be two people on a closing shift, just in case. Yeah, they were nice bosses. Yeah. Uh, so they managed to find on the 15th of May, 1971, that the note had been produced in Octavian Leniste's office that he had seen 83 students that month of whom 15 including Romaru had not deposited their diagnosis with the university officials so this they go and see the doctor he gave him a diagnosis but he didn't hand it in because he'd lost it under the Kayla's body right so that narrows it down to 15 then yeah and then yeah to 15 the police homed in on these 15 students and they closely monitored each suspect. After a while, Romaru's behaviour kind of gave him away. He's just, and then also when they were asking people, like, who's the class weirdo? If anyone's doing this, who do you think it is? 
And they were all kind of pointing to him. Yeah. Well, they're all going to say him, yeah. Just because you are the class weirdo doesn't mean that you are going to be a serial killer, but in this case, it was right. It was definitely the creepy, creepy guy. Definitely, yeah. So three officers went to his dormitory on the 27th of May, and he was not home. Uh, While they were searching his room, he came back at 1pm. In his sack, so in his bag, he had... In his sack? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just got that. I'm like... (laughs) I I don't know why they're laughing. Because it's like a nut sack. Sorry. Yeah. I got it. But later than... Scrotum. 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 Colon. Scrotum's such a horrible word, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I just, and now I'm thinking of a bag shaped like a scrotum, all hairy and wrinkly. I'm pretty sure they exist. But they also come in so many different shapes and sizes. Yeah. What, scrotums or bags? Oh, both. both. <laughs> in his bag, he had an axe, a Suspish. knife. Yep. They, from the victims, they had actually taken bite mark prints as well. Oh, he's a biter, is he? Yeah. Well, we've had another nibbly one. I can't remember what he what he was called, but he was a nibbler, wasn't he? I just think it's silly, a silly thing to do because you're giving yourself away. I, th- I don't know if they've come back on bite mark evidence as not being as accurate as what they thought it was. Oh, surely not. A bite mark's a bite. Like, you can tell everyone's got different teeth pattern, haven't they? Yeah, but like how it bruises on someone, it does. I mean, if someone's like missing a tooth, that would be, that'd be really obvious. But apparently they've, like nowadays, they've kind of said, you know, that Bundy was kind of gotten, that's what they got Bundy on was the teeth marks. Oh, yeah. And it probably might not really stand up now. Uh, Maybe. Ted Bundy was definitely a serial killer, right? Oh, yeah, it was definitely. I mean, I'm glad they did, but. Some of his offences were the 9th of April, 1970. He went to murder Elena Oprera. Then he raped and knocked her unconscious, Floricia Marku. And then going through July, it gets, you know, many rapes, aggravated theft. His first attempted murder was Olga in November of 1970. He also attempted to murder and really badly assaulted Georgita Elizabetha. And then in March 1971, that's when he decided to finish the job and he killed Phoenicia Il and Jogita Popa were his first victims. That was in March 1971 and April 1971. And then there was two more in May and then all through May, he was just, just attacking women all of the time. It went from... One a month to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven attacks in May. Not all murders, but attacks. So he just right. went absolutely mental. It's almost just like he was addicted to it and he couldn't stop. So what was he doing to these women then? Was he raping them or hitting not every them time? Or not every time? Yeah, no, every single time he was. Just um, attacking them physically, you know, punching them to completely beating them up, raping some of them. And then the ones that he murdered at first, it was just like beating them to death and then hitting them with an axe. And then it just went to completely 
just completely savaging their bodies. They were cut up and stomped on. So this is why people thought, oh, this could be a monster. Yeah. Yeah. He drank their blood oh, as well. Oh. That's not pleasant. And then, then he did a bit of a Jack the Ripper and um cut out the genitalia and, and everything. He just completely oh. went went mental on, on like the, savage. Full berserker yeah. mode. Just full animal. I don't know what happened to him to, for him to make, think that's okay. Well, you know what I mean? I don't understand how those people can just be like, well, I'm going to go back and make myself dinner now. I don't know. I don't know how you can do normal things after doing something like that. I mean, you, you said he had a pretty shitty childhood with parents that argued a lot, but it didn't really sound oh, yeah. that horrific. You know, it wasn't. No, it wasn't as bad as a lot of the serial killers are, but I think it was a divorce in the sixties where it wasn't, still wasn't that. In, in Romania, it's not, it's really looked down on. Yeah, but still, he wasn't like abused or anything. No, I couldn't find any, um, much information so that he was, uh, like abused throughout his, his whole childhood. I just think as well, if we used every, everyone's, you know, not so idyllic childhood as an excuse as to why they're a serial killer, we'd all be murdering people left, right and centre. Yeah. Like the whole world. Because, you know... Well, we don't use it as an excuse, but it is like a... I don't know if you were making a recipe on how to make a serial killer. That's kind of where you start. Yeah. Yeah. So after the murder of Jorgita Popa, which was the third murder victim... That's when police started taking things a little bit more seriously and they launched a, like a huge operation to catch him because everyone, no one would go out. The women were absolutely terrified well, of this monster. And obviously I'm glad that the, the police actually uh, did something about it. So the authorities went on high alert launching Operation Vulture, they called it, named after the street where Jogita Popper had been murdered. 6,000 men from various law enforcement agencies patrolled the streets every night, as well as 100 cars, 40 motorcycles, and medical personnel. They were not fucking about. No. Also, I thought this was awesome, night bus and tram operators were in on it too. And also, like, hotel and bar employees, all were mobilized, all were briefed on what they need to kind of look for. Yeah. And to report any suspicious behaviour. So I thought that was really good. Yeah, absolutely. Good on them. So altogether, 2,565 arrests were made. Does he have? And over 8,000 individuals were asked for identification. This is all before finding the note, yeah? Yeah, this was before finding the note, yeah. I was going to say, because... That sounds like overkill if you've only got 15 suspects. Yeah. So this was all going on. That was after one of the, one of the earlier murders. And it took them a while to figure out, you know, because they could only see the top of the note. They had to go and see that doctor. The doctor had to look through his, all of his files. So nothing was on computers back then. I suppose all that took time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As yeah. well. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. Authorities rated that the MO of this particular serial killer was very ferocious and cruel based on the fact that he loved cutting off the victim's clothes, biting their flesh off, yeah. dragging the victims around and hacking away at them as he did so. Yeah. And also he did tend to rape the victims while they were unconscious. Oh. 
and he was very impulsive and sadistic. He showed signs of, this is what they were saying earlier, of vampirism, for instance. Mm. He put several holes into the flesh of Florica Marku, and he would later reveal that he had actually sucked the blood out of them. Yuck. He also cannibalized so his victims. Oh, he ate them as well. Yeah. He's just got everything going for him. Yeah. He also ate their genitalia and breasts. And he... That's not how you're supposed to eat pussy. No, it's yeah. not. <laughs> Definitely not. You are doing it wrong. He had necrophiliac tendencies as he continued to rape his victims after they had died. <sighs> and would keep mutilating them after they had passed. So I really hope they were unconscious for most of this. God, yeah. Oh, what a nightmare. Yeah, so then afterwards they found this note and they that's when they closed in on Romaru. They're coming to get you. Yeah, after they arrested him, he remained completely silent, no expression, just staring into space. Well, that's not creepy. And that's also really annoying. I, really, I just kind yeah, of really think, annoying. just it, just... um. Admit it now. There's a lot of evidence against you. You might as well just tell us everything. Yeah, I agree. I just think they're cowards when they don't say anything afterwards. And also, I think it's another one of those control things that they get to control who knows what and I'm going to keep this to myself and stuff. Mm. So they decided to... What do they call it when they do that? When they disguise a police officer as a... as Like, yeah, that... That's it. But isn't there like, not like a sting operation, but uh, like an undercover cop? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I thought, I thought there was an actual word for this sort of thing. But anyway, yeah, one of the police, uh, peace officers went undercover as a thief and stayed in the cell next to him and got him to talk. So while this was going on, the media was all over this to the point where it was one of those things where everyone kind of knows that he's definitely guilty. We're just waiting for all the details to come out. And people were so disgusted with these crimes that they, people with the last, same last name, so Romaru, they legally altered their surnames rather than have any association with him. Bloody hell. So even if it's, they weren't from the same family, just because they had the same surname, they asked, they were allowed to, to legally change it to something else. After two months of interrogations, Romaru would finally admit to 23 very serious crimes. He'd actually only been arrested for three murders, but the rest, which was another murder, six attempted murders, five rapes, one attempted rape, seven thefts of various degrees. He tried to convince authorities that he wasn't responsible for any of this on the grounds of insanity. Thou chestnut. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, he does sound a little bit psychotic. I mean, he does sound completely insane. Yeah. But a part of the whole insanity thing is you don't hide what you've done. Also... Does an insane person know they're insane? No. That's what they say on the police programs is um when you are insane, if you were really insane, you could just go up and kill someone, I don't know, in the middle of the street and then just walk yeah. away and go home and then I'd be like, oh yeah, just do nothing to cover your tracks where he has done. He, he left the crime scene. He didn't leave anything there. Yeah. Apart from that last one. Apart from that last time. So they did a police lineup and brought in the victims 
to identify him and they apparently just trembled when their eyes met his. Oh, God. God, that must be so horrible. Yeah. I don't know if it's like now where it's a, a one-way mirror, two-way mirror, whatever it's called. Yeah, I'd expect so. I think that's yeah. old school, isn't it? Yeah. You know, despite him not being a danger to them anymore, they were just completely... Petrified. Petrified of him, yeah. Allegedly, for the public at large, Romaru's name itself inspired a vague dread. So, Romaru means earthworm in Romanian. Nice. Apparently. So, when he was arrested, his father was still alive. And the police was going to him, and apparently his father knew all about this, what he was doing. Oh. Right. Mm-hmm. But trust you nothing about it. Yeah. That doesn't make you a good father. No. So during the investigation, his father was arrested three times, but released because close relatives could not be forced to testify against other family members. After Romare's last crime, where he robbed a cashier, his mother visited him and found a lot of money under his pillow. His father made him go to the crime scene again and show him what he'd done, and then the father took the money for himself. So... I don't know what, Not a good what's person. going on with his dad. No. So the Romaru's trial drew significant public attention. And all throughout this, he really thought that he had convinced the investigators that he was actually insane. And he was apparently shocked when he read the report stating that his judgment would not be impaired by his mental illness and that he would be tried because apparently he did not suffer from hallucinations, deliriums or any similar conditions. So he immediately changed his plea, recanting his previous confessions in their entirety and then refused to answer any more questions or any of the lawyer's questions. But he was found guilty of all the crimes that all of the 20 odd crimes that he had committed and he was actually sentenced to death. God, yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, yeah. Yeah, apparently the entire courtroom erupted in applause. He appealed quite a few times, but the Supreme Tribunal just upheld the sentence they wouldn't give in. So on the 23rd of October 1971, he was taken to Jalava Prison in a van, he had to be dragged to the place of execution from the moment he left the van. So he wouldn't walk up there and do any, I mean, I imagine it's pretty scary, but still, he's a monster. Apparently, he just had a complete meltdown and was in a complete rage and tried to escape. He was to be put to death by fire squad. So what they had to do was tie him to a post because he wouldn't stay still for them to shoot him. Oh, my God. So that's how uh, he was put to death. After he was put to death, his father died as well of natural causes. And it came out later on that Romari's father was actually also a serial killer. What? It was a family business. Oh my God, that's why he didn't dob in his son then. Yeah, I think so. I think he could see Monster because he knew he knew it when he looks in his own in the mirror himself. Yeah. I wonder if he was proud of him or whether he was kind of horrified. 
So how did they find out that he was a serial killer too then? Well, listen to this. So in the summer of 1944, a string of four murders rocked wartime Bucharest. Each victim were all female again. They all lived in one of those basement apartments. Yeah. Yeah. Where the criminal would just enter at night during a storm, a bit like his son, and he'd bash their heads in with a blunt object. Mmm. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Yeah. That's so creepy. Yeah. The killer left fingerprints and footprints from military boots. Obviously, he was arrested quite a few times, wasn't he? Because of his son's trial. Yeah. Yeah. They actually matched those to him as well. So oh. they ma- they managed to, ma- after this all came out, they, um, they matched his father's fingerprints to this unsolved murder, or to these unsolved oh. murders from 1944. And because war was going on at the time, they didn't solve it back then. It just came out afterwards. But it was too late. He was already dead. Yeah. Oh, what a bummer. That's so weird. Like father, like son. Yeah. I wonder if he witnessed anything or anything like that. And uh, so, yeah, that's the story. That's that's really quite disturbing. Yeah, it's the twist at the end that got me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Unpleasant. Yeah. So, I have actually got a nice story this week. Oh, that's good. We need that. Well, I thought, you know... It's not very often you can have a nice want. <laughs> so I'd never heard about this. So when I heard about it, I was like, oh my God, I've got to do it on this because this is super interesting. Um, and I actually had an absolute ball getting my notes ready. Oh, there you go. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about shared death experiences. Oh. Okay. So have you got, you guys have heard of near death experiences, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this is shared death experiences, so it's a little bit different. So my sources for this week were Wikipedia, pubmed.ncbi.nih.gov, and then edition.cnn.com, and then YouTube. Okay. Okay. So to talk about shared death experiences, or SDE as they're called, I have to first touch on near-death experiences. Pretty sure everybody has heard of the stories of people dying and being resuscitated and coming back to life with another worldly story that they floated above their body, that they could see the doctors trying to save them, that they saw the bright light, and then they were jolted back into their body. We've all heard those stories, right? Yeah, yeah. A bit like the coma story with that lamp. Do you remember that? A bit like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, The coma story with the lamp, yeah. So actually, my husband has had one such experience. Oh my God. I know. Your husband, or are you reading it? No, my husband. My Ben. Oh, okay. So when he was 13, he fell off a rope swing on a tree. Yeah. But like he fell off at the highest point of the swinging bit. All right, yeah. Oh, God. So he fell about six metres. Yeah. And he landed on his side. Oh. So obviously, in quite a substantial amount of pain, he started to make his way home. So he walks the ten minutes it took to get from the woods back to the road. So he was on his own in the woods? No, he was with he was with three other mates. There was four of them. All right, okay. But also, Bex, that was like the 90s or the early noughties. Like, that was pretty standard. And I think, as I think when he told me earlier, there was actually four of them on this swing at the time he fell off. 
Right. Boys. Yeah, indeed. So he kind of picked himself up and was like, I've hurt myself, so I'm going to go home. So he walked <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> I know that feeling. I'm like, right, I- I'm all right, but I'm going to go home now. Yeah. Yeah. His pals all probably went, what a loser. <laughs> well, I think they knew he'd hurt himself, but I don't think they realised quite to what extent. Mm. So he walks home. He walks through the woods to the road where his dad picks him up. And then he goes home. And he sat down on the settee to try and kind of wait for the pain to go away. And as it wasn't going away, he thought, right, I'm going to go up and have a lie down. He actually collapsed on his way up the stairs. Oh, God. So that's when they rang the ambulance. Is he punched along? Uh, just, just hold your horses. Oh, I'm getting to Just it. getting spoiling, spoiling story. <laughs> <laughs> so after he collapsed, they rang an ambulance and he was rushed to the hospital. So as it turns out, he had in fact ruptured his kidney. Oh, dear. Oh. And he was suffering extreme internal bleeding. Oh, my God. Yep. His kidney had been pushed up under his rib cage and was completely crushed. That is shocking. Yep. He was rushed into the ICU and had a great team working on him, but still, at some point, he remembers floating above his body, watching people trying to save his life. And bless them, thank God, they did. And they saved his kidney too, after no less than five blood transfusions. <gasps> Wow. But he was in hospital for about six weeks. Funnily enough, the thing he remembers the most about being in hospital for that long is not the whole floating above his body bit, but what he remembers the most is being bought a Sega Dreamcast console and playing the House of the Dead 2. He's a (laughs) typical tech nerd. Bless him. So he got a game console out of it. Well, it was two days. He fell off this swing two days before his birthday. All right. So I imagine it was a birthday present that he got in the hospital and the hospital set him up with his own little TV and stuff so he could play while he was in hospital. But yeah, not very nice. Yeah, kidneys, Ben. You've only got two of those. You kind of need both. I'm so shocked. I didn't know he'd done that. No, the thing is, they were like, we can either take the kidney out or we can just kind of give him these blood transfusions and... Hope he kind of heals by himself. So it's uh, self-repairing then, the... Uh... Well, apparently so, because now... Um, he, since I've been with him, he has had... Um, what are they called? Ecographs? What's that in English? Well, scan, yeah. yeah. Uh, of his ultrasounds. kidneys, and they're absolutely fine. Yeah. Yeah, like an ultrasound on his kidneys. And uh, yeah, they're absolutely fine. So... Well, there he's, you go. And he's still hey, got hey. both of them. Does it come back down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everything's back where it should be. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, bless him. Six weeks in hospital, but he had a near-death experience. He was floating above his body, which is very odd. Yeah. It's funny how many people have the same experience, isn't it? Well, I'll get to that. Yeah. So, and then there's the story of Pam Reynolds, and this is a really famous one. So, she was having brain surgery, and she did actually die for a short time. So, she had no blood to the brain, no brain activity, and she remembers floating above her body and watching the operation, and then she saw a light, and she could begin to see her loved ones that had already passed. She remembers wanting to go with them, but her uncle saying that she had to go back. She refused, so he pushed her back into her body. 
Once she had recovered, she told the doctors about her near-death experience and described what instruments they were using and what conversations they were having, which would have been impossible for her to hear because she had headphones on that were monitoring her brain activity by making loud clicking noises every few seconds. Yeah. So it's not like she could have, even unconscious, she couldn't have heard them. Yeah. And the doctor said that everything she described was completely accurate and they have no explanation for it. Oh my God. So those are two typical near-death experiences. The difference between these and shared death experiences is that the another person, either very close emotionally or by proximity, goes on the dying person's end-of-life journey with them. I find these stories fascinating as near-death experiences have often been poo-pooed as just being the brain's normal reaction to shutting down and therefore nothing spiritual. So what you were saying, Becky, is a lot of people have the same experience and it has been explained away as it's just the way your brain copes with dying, basically. So it's all like a big hallucination. Yeah, I mean, I have heard that there's like a, a real spike in brain activity near the end. But I know I meant it in the fact that because so many people have similar experiences, that there's something in there, if you know what I mean. There must be something going on. Well, the interesting thing, there's no way to explain away a shared death experience because yeah, exactly. the other person that's experiencing it isn't dying. So their brain isn't going through anything. You know, their brain isn't shutting down. So yeah, when um my mum died... I didn't have anything like that, but I woke up that morning and then at the time that she did die, because they told me the time afterwards, I just burst into tears for no, well, not no reason because I was sad because I knew that my mum was, wasn't going to last much longer, but it was, it was at the same time that she did pass away that I just suddenly burst into tears. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. So you, but you, I didn't you, you know knew. what it was for. I knew that I was thinking of my mum when it happened, but I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know that um, that's what happened. But there was definitely something like an emotional, a definite emotional connection there when that happened. Yeah. Mm. So there are four distinct modes of shared death experience. So one is remotely sensing death, which is actually pretty much what I think you probably had, Bex. Yeah. Just kind of knowing. Witnessing unusual phenomena around dying time. And the feeling of accompanying the dying and feelings of assisting the dying. So the effects of shared death experiences have on people that have experienced them usually include a change in belief. So like somebody completely atheist would all of a sudden believe in a higher power. Yeah. Yeah. It helps with grief, obviously, because, well, you know that they've gone somewhere nice. Yeah. And a feeling that our bonds with our loved ones continue after death, which I think is just a really lovely thought. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. At the end of the day, the idea of dying is scary and just fading into oblivion is quite overwhelming. I'm dealing with this at the minute with my seven-year-old who all of a sudden has a million questions about death. I suppose it is to be, it's to be expected to be afraid of the idea of death Mm. and I try my best to reassure her we all go to a better place and we'll all be together again. But there is a little unease on my part because I don't know really what happens. I know what I believe, but I don't know for a fact that this is 
Nobody does, of course not. Don't you think, like, what is our fear of death? Like, is it the leaving the loved ones behind? Is it not I think that's there? what mine is, yeah. Mine's the more that I'm not going to see anyone ever again. That's the sad bit for me, if you know what I mean. If you if we go with this kind of theory, then you will. Yeah, I see. But but all the people that are still alive, you wouldn't see. Well, not for a very long time. Yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully. Anyway, <laughs> you know, you'd want other people to live as long as possible. Yeah, that's that. That and it is it's fear of the unknown, isn't it? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And it is. It's a difficult question to deal with from a child to be honest i'd much prefer her to ask me how babies are made i I can i can tell her (laughs) that no problem but what happens after you die it's a tricky one but i just kind of think you know i tell her about santa claus and the tooth fairy so you know one little white lie that might not be a lie i don't know it could all be true but if it makes my kiddo stop crying at the time and takes away her fear of death then you know i'm all for it yeah I think it's because when when a kid's six, they have a lot better understanding of seven. She's seven now. Uh, yeah, when they when they're six, so she's around the six, um, and then should they just turn seven? Hasn't she? Yeah, she has. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the age, I think, and it is scary. I mean, you know, and I suppose she's um, the whole COVID thing hasn't helped. Even though I'm sure you you try and shield the kids as much as possible. Oh, I do. I do. I'm like you, a mother still hen. still some things up. Helicopter mm. parent. <laughs> I mean, they know what's going on. I haven't hidden the truth from them. I just protect them from it as much as I can. Yeah. But with these testimonies of shared death experiences, this could seriously point towards there being something else out there for us when we pass. The concept of shared death experience was coined by Raymond Moody after he spent 20 years collecting testimonies. William Peters, who actually went on later to write a book called At Heaven's Door, was working as a volunteer in a hospice. Now, he was actually working as a volunteer as he himself had had a near-death experience after a skiing accident. He had seen himself floating and seen the light, but he'd refused to go because he didn't want to die. And then he heard a voice say, make it worth it. So he did loads of volunteer work. Oh, that's cool. So anyway, so while he's volunteering at this hospice, he would visit and read to a man called Ron regularly, as he had very few visitors. One afternoon, as he sat down to read to Ron, who was dying of stomach cancer, they were reading a book called Call of the Wild. Peters felt a force pull his spirit out of his body, and he was just above Ron's bed, floating. Then he looked next to him and saw Ron, who was also just floating above the bed. He looked at Peters as if to say, how great is this? He looked happy and he was smiling. Peters then felt his spirit drop back into his own body. And of course, Ron died very soon afterwards. Oh my God, that's mad. (laughs) Yeah. So Peters was extremely confused at what had just happened, but soon learned that he was not alone and that he had experienced a shared death experience with Ron. So William Peters actually then went to listen to a talk by Raymond Moody, who was, you know, the one researching all of this. And he spoke to him afterwards saying that he had had experience like what Raymond was explaining and that he too wanted to research it. So he became, with Moody, one of the main researchers of shared death experiences. 
Another story comes from a German soldier called Karl during the First World War. He was hiding in a foxhole with his best mate when an artillery shell exploded, killing his friend. He felt his friend go limp in his arms. And then Karl felt himself being pulled upwards with his friend. He looked down and saw himself with his friend in his arms. Then he looked up and saw a bright light and felt himself going towards it with his friend. However, he stopped and returned to his body. He was unharmed except for hearing loss from the explosion. Oh, baby. I just, it's just mad, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So a lot of these experiences are had by nurses who care for the dying, but often their stories go untold or unexplained. I mean, honestly, guys, go on TikTok and look up near-death experiences or shared death experiences or follow a few of the um, the nurses on there. The stories they tell are pretty incredible. Mm. So Penny Sartori was one of these nurses. She was preparing to give a bath to a deathbed patient who was all hooked up to a ventilator and other equipment. She said that all she did was touch the man's bed and then it was like everything around them stopped and disappeared. In that instant, she could feel everything the man felt, the pain, the discomfort. And even though he couldn't speak, with his physical voice, she heard him say, Leave me alone. Let me die in peace. Just let me die. Oh, poor man. This experience led her to investigate further. And after five years of collecting testimonies, she wrote a book called The Wisdom of Near-Death Experiences. She says often they can feel the temperature drop around the patient or a light would surround the body just before death. Light bulbs can flicker and often a clock will stop at the time of death. Oh, that's weird, isn't it? It's all very strange, but in a nice way, if that makes sense. Like they're getting a send-off almost, like a, you know what I mean? Like if it's like glows and then glows and goes. Glows and goes. That's what they do. They glow and go. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is kind of nice, like you say. Yeah. I got a very comforting feeling while I was writing all this. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? Yeah. So this next one is really good. Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll was not expecting to have a shared death experience with his patient, Jeffrey Olson. So there's two Jeffs. It's going to get confusing. Yeah. Okay. When his patient, Jeffrey Olson, was rushed into the emergency room after a terrible car accident, where sadly his wife and youngest son had been killed instantly. Oh, oh my God. Jeff was in a very bad way when he arrived, and his survival was not a given by any means from memory uh, his leg had to be amputated, he had crushed ribs, his arm was hanging off, he had a collapsed lung. Bloody hell. He was in very bad condition. The doctor turned the corner to go into Jeff's room and saw his wife floating above his bed. He instinctively knew that this was his wife and she turned and looked at the doctor in a kind of thankful and grateful way. When Jeff was a lot more stable and able to communicate, the two talked about the apparition the doctor saw. Jeff said he was there with his wife for some time and he wanted to go with her, but he couldn't because their other son, who was seven at the time, had survived the crash and needed his dad. Oh, good Lord. So Jeff returned to his extremely broken body and healed and became firm friends with Dr. O'Driscoll. Wow. 
So, okay, one doctor saw Jeff's dead wife floating there in the ER. Strange, definitely, no doubt. But here's Mm -hmm. the thing. A nurse who was also working on Jeff also saw his wife just there watching over them too. Oh, God. They're nice stories, but they're kind of hitting me in the the old feels. In the feels. Well, I've got to hit you some way. If it's not complete, like, total fear, I'm hitting you in the feels. No. So another story was shared by Scott Taylor, and this is on YouTube. And actually, the story above, if you want to look up Dr. Jeff O'Driscoll and Jeffrey Olson, they've made a really nice video on YouTube as well, so you can go and watch them. Yeah. So another story was shared by Scott Taylor on YouTube. He talked about how he fell completely in love with a lady called Mary Fran, and she already had a little boy called Nolan. And they were all very happy together until Mary Fran and Nolan were in a tragic car accident. Mary Fran was killed outright, but little Nolan, although he had a fatal head injury, lasted five days before he too passed away. Oh, God. Oh, God. Mary Fran had a big family and they were all at the hospital when the nurses said Nolan was going to pass very soon. So everyone, including Scott, went to his bedside. Scott, just being the boyfriend, kind of stayed back and gave the other family members their space. Yeah. Eventually, when little Nolan's vitals flatlined, Scott saw Mary Fran come down and scoop him up. He said the feeling of love and joy that he witnessed was completely overwhelming. But then, to his surprise, they both turned to him and included him in their embrace. Oh, bless him. He even went with them into the light. He said the feeling of complete peace and contentment was incredible. But of course, he could not stay. So he returned back into the hospital room full of Nolan's grieving relatives. He said his heart was so happy and so full of just peace and reassurance that he could feel himself smiling becoming very aware that his response was inappropriate, he covered his face. Oh, bless him. Scott had no idea what had just happened or how even to begin to explain it, so he didn't, until 15 years later. He held on to that for all that time. Yeah, 15 years, he didn't tell a soul. He was doing a thesis on near-death experiences, and it just so happened that one of Mary Fran's relatives, who he'd kept in touch with, had had one just four years after Mary Fran had died. So Scott went to interview her for this thesis. And when they sat down, the relative said, I know why you're here and why you're doing this thesis. And Scott looked at her, confused. She went on to say, it's because of what happened when Nolan died. She then described the exact same scene that Scott had experienced that day. So it turns out there wasn't just three of them in the light, but four. Oh, that's so nice, isn't it? But he said it was, it it was incredible. She described Mary Fran coming down and scooping Nolan out of his body. And she, she just described exactly what he had seen and gone through. Yeah. So it was pretty incredible. Mm. So this last one's a little bit different. It's just a story about wanting to say goodbye to someone they cared about. Nina DeSanto worked in a hair salon and she was just preparing to close up shop for the night when she saw one of her customers, Michael, standing outside in front of the glass door. 
She knew Michael because he'd been going through a very rough patch in his life. He'd be going through a divorce after finding out that his stepbrother was having an affair with his wife. Oh, bastard. And he'd then lost custody of his children. He was completely broken. He'd got absolutely nothing left. Oh, my. So Nina took a little extra care with him. She listened to him every time he came in. She gave him little, like, pep talks. They'd even gone out for drinks together. Oh, bless her. That's nice of her. Yeah. So there's Michael standing at the door, smiling at her. Nina, I can't stay long. I just wanted to stop by and say thank you for everything. They chatted a little more and Michael left and Nina went home. The next day, she received a call from one of the salon's employees saying that Michael's body had been found. He'd committed suicide at least nine hours before Nina had seen him at the salon. Oh, no. So this type of phenomena is called a crisis apparition, which is when a deceased person will make contact one more time with someone they felt emotionally connected to. I read a very similar story where a lady who had been divorced for many, many years suddenly felt her ex-husband's presence and she heard his voice say, thank you for all the years we had together. A few hours later, she found out that he had in fact died. So there we go. For once, it wasn't all about drama and lost souls and creepy kids and monsters in the woods. It's just gone and broken me and Tash completely emotionally. (laughs) How's I? Just... Uh, sat here crying <laughs> I've bitten my lips so bad I'm like don't cry <laughs> so this story was about hope I hope that there is something else out there when we eventually die something lovely somewhere where all our loved ones are waiting for us to reunite and be together again and I personally find great comfort in that thought oh, beautiful Emma so there you go shared death experiences <laughs> are you guys okay I mean, yeah. I can't talk. <laughs> oh, that's uh, emotional, isn't it? Yeah. I told you. I told you. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you did say you were a crier at the minute. from a mental breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you explain that away? I just don't think you can. I just think it's all you can kind of hope for, isn't you? Just that little bit of comfort that you can either give a dying soul... Or that they can give you as they're dying. I could have gone on for pages and pages and pages. There are so many people out there that have experienced this type of phenomena. So seriously, if you're interested, just go Google it. Go check it out. There are some incredible stories. <laughs> when I need a good cry. Yeah. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't want to make anybody upset. I thought it was a happy one. No, it's not like a bad cry. It's not like a bad cry. It's kind of like that's kind of all you that is honestly what you hope for, isn't it? That like especially that one with the little boy that he was yeah. dying and his mum come and got him like and then he got the comfort of knowing that they were both ha- like together. Exactly. And, safe. and it helps so much with the grieving process. And yeah. there are people researching it. And, you know, who knows? Maybe one day we'll have the answers and maybe everything wouldn't be so scary or sad. So. Mm. Well, that was really, it was really, really nice, but really, really, <laughs> yeah. Broken your co host here. <laughs> 
I'll put all our social links in the description of this episode. We're everywhere, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, we're everywhere. I'll put everything in the description. Yeah. And then um, if you have any stories to write in, uh, murder stories, ghost stories, any stories really, please write them into chillers.killers.pod at gmail.com. Fantastic. Right. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Don't kill people. And keep it weird. Bye. Bye. Bye.